so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC Podcast. (laughs) You spoke too soon, Marky Mark. Oh, yeah, it's back. It's back. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week is Brent Leatherwood. Hi, Lindsay. And this is a a pretty unique episode of the ERLC podcast, isn't it? Yes. I think we should let listeners know that, you know, we've been absent for two weeks. First week was because uh, the SBC annual meeting was happening out in California, full of all kinds of things. So it was a very busy time. And then we recorded an episode last Thursday, which we didn't feel was appropriate to drop on Friday because the biggest event that we have seen in 50 years has happened. And that is the overturning of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey in the Dobbs decision. So that's primarily what this special episode is going to be about. Yeah. So we had, you know, recorded a full normal uh, ERLC podcast episode. And then just given the gravity of the Dobbs decision, which we, you know, we did anticipate, especially because we had the leaked opinion. Um, but just seeing it happen, reading through the published opinion that came out, I mean, the, fundamentally, the world changed uh, last Friday at 9, 10 a.m. Central Time. And so it just, it just seemed, it just seemed not appropriate, really, to release uh, the episode that we had recorded uh, in the wake of the Dobbs decision. And so that's why we're here. We're in the studio a little bit early to just kind of reflect on that moment. And I know that there's a, I mean, gosh, there's probably at this point thousands of podcasts with people giving uh, their takes on it. But I think we need to be on the record uh, because this is so central to our work at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I say that full title because the heart of our convention on this issue has in so many ways been pointed and preparing for uh, this moment. And so that is certainly one of the uh, main items on the agenda for this organization and the ministry assignment that Southern Baptists have given us over the years. So, yeah, so I just, I, I thought it would make sense for us. To, let's just ditch the episode that we had last week. Uh, and now that we've had a few days to really digest and take in the Dobbs opinion, just take a few moments to just kind of reflect on where we are now that we are, you know, a handful of days into the post row moment that we have been seeking and advocating and pleading for. Like, we're here. <laughs> what, what a privilege 
to be able to live in this moment. So I, I wanted to start with this. Lindsay, what are some of your reflections first as a, as a Christian and then as a woman after this Dobbs decision and after uh, the Roe Casey legal framework has been taken down? Like, what, Share some of your reflections with our listeners. Well, my reflections pale in comparison to those who have really poured themselves out for the sake of preborn babies and their their vulnerable mothers and families. But as a Christian, I think it's a reminder to me that as the Lord says, we're called to, in His Word, in the Gospels, we're called to persevere in prayer, to be that nagging neighbor at night who's knocking for a morsel of bread or the woman who repeatedly went to the judge for help. And that God hears our prayers and that He's willing to act upon them according to His will. I can imagine that people involved in this this ministry and this movement for so long probably grew weary so very often and thought it was impossible, especially living in an abortion-minded culture. But God is still on the throne and He moves he moves the hearts of kings or, or rulers, legislators, as we would mm. say here, since we don't have a king, as he will. Their hearts are like streams in his hand. So it just is a reminder to persevere in prayer. You, It may take 49 years, <laughs> but the Lord is listening, and you never know how he's going to answer. And it really, truly is seems just like a miracle that the Lord would do this. And I was overwhelmed looking at my kids, thinking about all the children whose lives— are lost, who didn't get a chance to live Mm -hmm. and experience life, but thinking about the babies too, who will be born. And then from a woman's perspective, you know, I imagine there are people close to me too, who are disheartened and fearful in the midst of such a, in the midst of this ruling, talking about women's rights, et cetera. And I realize that enemy has blinded the minds of unbelievers and our our thinking has been affected by the fall, the noetic effects of the fall, as theologians say. And so they can't see things for what they are. Mm-hmm. And I prayed for a marriage for a long time. I didn't get married till I was 34 and I desired children, didn't know, had seen people walk through infertility and thought, you know, I might, that might be me because I'm in my 30s. And by God's grace, I didn't have to. And I have two children right now. And even as someone with incredible support on all sides, surrounded, I have everything I need to be supported in having a family. Pregnancy was still hard and scary. The unknowns were still there. Raising children is joyful, but hard. It's a laying down of your life over and over again. So I can imagine, and I hope this isn't taken the wrong way, but I understand how people apart from the Lord and apart from a sanctified mind would choose to not take on the sacrificial burden of having children, thinking that there's not a living human being inside of them. That only makes sense if you you deny the the personhood of that that preborn child. Clearly, we are in a place where many, many people Well, you can only be in that kind of a place when you define women's health care and a part of that as taking the life. Those things just don't go together if you take a step back. The only way they go together is if you are in a moment of complete cultural confusion and you somehow think, oh, yes, of course, an essential part of healthcare is the ability to take the life 
of a child. Like, that makes no sense. Like, that's not medical care. Well, and I think many women don't think about it that way. They think about, well, they've probably been trained to not think about this life inside of them as a life yet. Right. But also they're thinking about their, many women, not all, are thinking about their autonomy, their desire to live how they want to live, and a child turns your world upside down. So I say all that to say, I have compassion for these women. I hope I have compassion for these women and understand that we as a church, and we all have different roles to play, need to come alongside abortion-vulnerable women and fathers and help equip them with what they need to raise these little lives who will be, now that they may be called to place them up for adoption so that they have a chance to live with another family who can care for them better. But life is always worth choosing. It's never right to go down the path of death. And it will not lead to the flourishing that the enemy and the culture has lied and told us that it will lead to. So all that to say, we have a lot of work ahead of us. But I'm confident that God will give us the grace to continue to do what so many believers have already been doing in the pro-life movement. Right. I mean, and that's the thing, right? Our our churches have been so effective and so involved in various aspects of this ministry, right? Like just just think through the whole spectrum of care that's available for vulnerable mothers, right? We know that we know there are a number of our churches that partner with the local pregnancy resource clinic that helps serve these women in a pro-life fashion. Uh, we know of a number of churches, whether it's through uh, their support of NAM or through local adoption services, foster care agencies. A number of our states have Baptist children's homes that our, our, our churches uh, support. Or, you know, I, I know of churches that that have uh, ministries that will, will come and walk alongside uh, mothers, give them the resources they need, sometimes even the financial resources they need, and, and come alongside them and provide them the spiritual, emotional, and community uh, support that they need. Uh, so, I mean, our, our churches have, for many, many years now, uh, been doing this work, but as uh, several voices have have pointed out, in this moment where uh, lots of states are rightfully now going to end abortion and make it a thing of the past, there should be a number of women out there who are in crisis, and and so that work we're going to need to redouble our efforts and just enhance them any ways that we can, and enhance our engagement and our outreach and uh, our support. And I think our churches are absolutely ready for this moment. And and our hope at the ERLC is to be able to show that model that our churches are doing to state officials and to elected officials across the country and say, see what, see what these churches are doing, see what the good work that is happening here. The state should follow the lead uh, of these churches and certainly do not do anything to get in the way uh, of this work. If anything, figure out ways to support this work. And so that's where all this is headed. And we need to be very clear, this decision, as important as it is, as monumental uh, as it is, it's not going to deter the enemy. The enemy is still going to use all of his deceptive ways uh, through Planned Parenthood, through the other 
organizations that make up the predatory abortion industry to continue coming at women, to lie to them, to tell them, oh, if you want to succeed at life, just end the life of that preborn child uh, and just just go to another state, go to go to some other location where they'll do this for you and just in this little inconvenience. Uh, and to be clear, it's not just vulnerable women. These fathers are anxious and don't know what to do uh, and, and think that their only recourse here is just, let me just drive her to the abortion clinic uh, or, or these families in crisis. We, we, I think we also have to understand there's a number of mothers that have sought an abortion where it is their second or third child. They already have a, a child that they're raising. And so, I mean, the enemy is just, gosh, it, it's just, he is just going after and targeting these individuals and these families in so many different ways. And we're just going to have to be nimble and our, our, our messaging to reach these people out there uh, it's, it's just going to have to be so multifaceted. We're going to have to continue our efforts to plead for protection of these preborn children. Uh, we're going to have to continue meeting these mothers and these fathers and these families uh, where they are. We're going to have to continue proclaiming a true vision uh, for the dignity and sanctity of life uh, so that we can move our culture to a true culture of life. And so, I mean, this, this work is not over. This work is not over. Uh, if anything, this just, this means a new chapter for the pro-life movement. And so I was bouncing off the walls Friday, Saturday, Sunday at church. Gosh, my service, I don't know for our listeners, I, I, I hope that you got to experience something like this, but our service at my church was so life-affirming in this moment. It was so good. And and it was done in a humble way. It wasn't done in a boastful way. We know we're only to boast in the Lord. And, and honestly, it is only through the Lord that we were able to be in this moment uh, because of the perseverance and the endurance that he has given to the church, to Christian voices, to pro-life activists, and to others to get us to this moment. Uh, so all glory goes to our Father for the fact that we even get to live <laughs> yeah, on this day. Oh gosh, it's just it's such a joy. But I know that at my church and so many others, it was done in a in a humble fashion because this is where the church, oh gosh, we're going to lean into that essential spirit that we have to be servants in this moment because there's there's so many to be served in the wake of this decision. And I think that service will end up saving countless lives. And so what an opportunity. It is an opportunity. And, you know, there's also a word of warning because we have been talking to friends and colleagues who had been surprised about the response from some of their Christian friends who yep. they would have thought would have been supportive of this decision, and they are not, and they are decrying this decision and, and its effect on women's rights, et cetera. So we do have a generation of Christians who have been discipled by the culture, largely, 
And so as believers, we're going to, you know, we've got work to do, reshaping consciences and minds to be conformed to the word and not to the pattern of the world, as Roman says. And we as believers have got to watch our hearts so that we are not being blown by the winds of whatever the ideology is around us that is uh, most popular or tickles our ears the most, as the Bible says as well. We've got to be people who are firmly rooted and grounded in God's Word and what God's Word says, regardless of what the consequences are around us, societally or socially. And that, that goes for this life issue, that goes for sexuality issues, you know, it goes for a whole host of things. So, uh, that's just a word of caution there as well. And Lindsay, I just I want to revisit, uh, because we actually haven't been able, because we've had so many of these huge days, we haven't been able to talk much about Anaheim and the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting that took place there. But during the report that we made from the stage for the ERLC, I was looking forward to this moment where the Supreme Court decision would be here. And, you know, we we were thinking more than likely it would reflect uh, the leaked opinion that came out earlier this year. And thankfully, it has. And so I said this from the stage. Thankfully, we live in a nation that has the capacity to rectify injustices of the past, that truth has guided the pro-life movement for years. Should the leaked draft opinion from the Supreme Court remain the same, we will see this occur once more, for we will witness the most significant achievement in the history of the pro-life movement. If that day comes, this convention of churches, you, as Southern Baptists, will have played an instrumental role in getting us to that moment. For nearly 40 years, our churches have made advocacy for life a priority. And that's kind of where I'm thinking for this little portion, I, I just want to end with is gratitude for our churches. Uh, whether it is our seminaries that have trained pastors, our mission boards that have sent church planners, missionaries across the seas to proclaim the truth of the Imago Day and all of its implications, particularly uh, for our preborn neighbors, uh, for the work that we do, uh, being sent into the public square uh, to proclaim that truth. All of it is powered by our churches and the sacrificial giving of Southern Baptists. And we've done this now for decades. And because of that, we have played an instrumental role in getting us to this moment. And so I'm just... I'm thankful to be a part of a network of churches that believes the protection of preborn lives is vitally important. And uh, I, I just, we would not have gotten here without that consistent conviction, that consistent witness. So in that regard, this victory for Dobbs, it's a shared moment. It's a shared achievement with all the, you know, 48,000 churches of the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, and we would be amiss if we didn't thank the former president of the ERLC, Dr. Richard Land, for his instrumental work that he played 
in helping shift the Southern Baptist Convention, we actually have an article on our site about this, from pro-choice to pro-life and all the work that he put in. And then your predecessor, Dr. Russell Moore, for the work that he's done as well. So yeah, it is a, it's a shared victory for so many. And of course, the Pregnancy Resource Center workers who are just heroes, frontline heroes. All right, so Lindsay, you know, we're recording this several days after uh, the Dobbs decision. Our team has churned out (laughs) just an incredible amount of material, analyzing this case, looking at ways we can can serve uh, our churches. And and so I'm just interested in in all of that material that you uh, have have shepherded to be published and, and created in this moment. What are what are just a few of the pieces you think it would make sense for our listeners to kind of specifically key in on right now? Yes, and we will have these in the show notes, of course. So the first one's an explainer about the Supreme Court's ruling that there's no constitutional right to abortion. So this just goes through the ruling and what was happening and how the justices ruled and all of that. And so that's just a quick fact-finding mission you can take there and get the answers. We've done that work for you. Also, just on a practical level, we have a piece called How to Talk to Your Church about the Dobbs Supreme Court Decision, A Guide for Pastors and Church Leaders. And so we put this out, and it was designed to use this past weekend on Sunday, but it can be used at any time. There are some prayer points in there. It just consolidates really what is in that explainer as far as the facts go. And then we had a piece by our friend and former colleague, Matthew Hawkins. And this was before the Dobbs decision came down, but it applies, and I think it's great. So it's six ideas for leading your church in pro-life ministry in light of Dobbs. And it talks about how you can foster a pro-life culture within your church. And that is not only in talking and preaching about it, but in getting to work with pregnancy resource centers and some of the specifics about how you would do that. And so I highly recommend that piece. And then just finally, we have a landing page on our site about the Dobbs ruling, and it's titled here, What You Should Know About the Supreme Court Decision on Abortion. And you, when you click on that, you just scroll down. It's got an interactive map that shows what the laws of the states are, what states allow abortion, what, what states abortion is automatically illegal in. It's got some other information there. It's a one-stop shop that I would highly recommend that our team worked really hard on. You mentioned the resource that we created for pastors and church leaders, and I just love that our team, in the midst of analyzing the case, uh, we said, hey, first and foremost, we need to get out something for pastors. And that is the dual role that we play here at the ERLC. Not only are we obviously continuing to do our work in front of Congress, in front of the courts, uh, Capitol Hills, across the country at state legislatures, but we want to make sure that our pastors first and foremost, have the resources that they need to either be able to help their congregation to process what just happened, or I had a number of pastors who probably didn't even use a word of what we sent out in, I mean, this resource in particular was that we sent it to all of our lists (laughs) so that every person would have this. But I heard from some pastors who didn't even use a word. They just said, man, this was just so helpful so that I wasn't starting from a blank slate as I either talk through this or pray through this with my congregation. Uh, and like, that's what we're here for. 
You don't have to use a word that we say, just so long as it helps you just kind of think through uh, what makes sense in the context that you are ministering in. And, um, and so I just, I, I loved uh, that particular resource that we produced. Well, and honestly, it is accessible and adaptable for parents to use as a guide to talk with their children or other church leaders to use as they are discipling youth or women or men or whatever it might be. So uh, just because it might say pastors and church leaders, you don't have to be in that particular role to take advantage of this resource. And I'm just to say, too, I'm, I'm thankful that we're able to put together these types of things because I wouldn't know where in the world to go to think about these complex issues, things that have to do in my own personal life with politics and legal type things and jurisprudence, which I never used in my vocabulary until I came to the ERLC, <laughs> uh, is not my forte. And so the Lord has not gifted me in, in those areas. So I'm thankful that we have a team to help us in the midst of, of your busy lives as listeners and as believers to help you understand how to think biblically about these things and how how God's word and the gospel bears on all of life. Mm. And, you know, it wasn't just us that was thinking through how to serve our churches at the RLC. Uh, our friends at Baptist Press were. And so, you know, for this next section, I'm just going to talk through a few items uh, that just caught my attention that I think might be helpful for our listeners. But our, our friends at Baptist Press, they were thinking through Hey, uh, is there a like an online event maybe that we can uh, spin up here in the wake of Dobbs? And so uh, we did that uh, last Friday uh, in the early evening. We got together with Baptist Press and held an event with an online event with Governor Bill Lee of Tennessee, uh, who is a a strong believer and a, a great Christian leader in the the civic space. Uh, and we thought, you know what, he's the perfect individual to approach for this because functionally, in case you don't know yet, functionally, the Supreme Court decision overturned Roe versus Wade and put the issue of abortion firmly back at the state level. Uh, so functionally, procedurally, that's, that's what's going to uh, happen here. So state leaders like Governor Bill Lee are especially uh, going to play an integral role in this issue moving forward. So we had very honored that that Governor Lee, uh, who was uh, traveling and uh, very busy schedule, as you can imagine, in the wake of this, was was able to give us a few minutes at the top of this event. And then uh, Dana Hall McCain, uh, who many folks know, uh, she served as the vice chair of our resolutions committee in in Anaheim at the SBC annual meeting. Uh, she is an acclaimed uh, opinion columnist uh, from Alabama. And then our brand new SBC president, Bart Barber, pastor from, from Texas. Uh, Dr. Barber uh, has been on the job for, uh, when we recorded this, 10 days. And he's already had one of the most historic uh, presidential administrations uh, in SBC history. We were joking about that. And then I, I also uh, joined this event. It's called Life After Row, Responding to the Historic Supreme Court Decision. And we had a good number of folks watch live, but then uh, BP has it so that if churches, for example— uh, wanted to uh, run this for their congregations or send it out to their congregations, they certainly can do so. So we will link that in the show notes. That was another, I think, 
uh, great uh, opportunity for us to equip the churches. Yeah, I watched the event, and I know, Brent, you were exhausted by the end of the day, all the things that you were running around to, but it was so good and so helpful. I would highly recommend that you watch it. And who knows, on playback, I haven't checked it, but you may be able to put it on two times speed. So you could watch even <laughs> faster than it was live. Make us all sound like chipmunks. That's right. Uh, but Governor Bill Lee is just the real deal, just appears to be the real deal. So humble. And then I have to tell you, Dana Hall McCain is just hilarious. She had, her family was there, so she had to hide out in, I don't know if it's her closet or what, but it was amazing. All the moms who have had to do work from home, really anyone who's had to do work from home since the pandemic just said, amen. <laughs> At one point, her dog was barking to get in, so she had to let her dog in. It was great. So I loved it. And it, it was so helpful. It was, absolutely. A few other things that caught my eye. One was the initial statement that was given by U.S. Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska. Uh, so uh, National Review, uh, the conservative outlet, actually picked this one up initially just because his thinking on this issue is, is always just so meaty and true. And uh, just to, to read a, a few points about this, uh, this issue will now be debated in the 50 states and a 330 million person continental nation will work through this debate in a way that's healthier than Roe's one-size-fits-all Washington centrism. The pro-life movement is pro-baby, pro-mom, and pro-science. This cause is rooted in love, and now is the time to show it. We can't call this legal victory the end because our movement has never been primarily about lawsuits and laws. It's about love and compassion. So let's celebrate today's victory and get to work. Let's support and love all pregnant women. Let's come alongside them and give them the support they need. Let's support babies regardless of the situations they face and build communities around them that will love and cherish them. There's more to the statement, and he kind of concludes with this, Rose days are over, but the pro-life movement's work has just begun. And so that echoes a little bit of, of what we were uh, saying more at the, the top of the show. But that gives you a sense of, you know, what one of the uh, leading intellectuals in the U.S. Senate is thinking about this. And, and that is uh, the direction that this is going, because there, there is going to be many, many more opportunities for Christian love and service uh, to come in the pro-life movement moving ahead. And similar to that, another person I wanted to highlight who has done a tremendous amount of thinking uh, about the post-Roe moment is Lauren Green McAfee. And uh, she has a piece that appeared at the Gospel Coalition website, and it says, After Roe, How Do We Stand for Life? And this was just a, a beautiful piece. We've obviously done a lot of work, uh, particularly on the pro-life cause uh, with Lauren. And uh, she's just done some incredible thinking here, and I'm, I'm so glad that she shared it. She said this, if the church wants to engage the current moment and stand for life, it must be a reflection of God's love and truth for the sake of his glory. Our ultimate goal in pro-life work is not merely to save a physical life. Rather, our ultimate goal should be to care for people in a way that leads them to know the one who can save their souls. In the process, physical lives will be saved as well. And I think that, particularly from the Christian perspective, is so true. We are concerned about saving physical lives. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but we also are concerned about their eternal lives. And that undergirds so much of the church's 
work in this moment. Absolutely, because physical life is a good gift, but it's not the end goal. Physical life only leads to the second death if you don't have eternal life through Christ. And so we want to see people live physically, but we will also want to see people live spiritually, which will promise that they live eternally in the new heavens and the new earth. So we want them to know physical life so that by God's grace and His mercy, they can know life with Christ as well, which is, the Bible tells us, is better than even the greatest life that we can have here on earth. Mm. And she, uh, I love in this piece, she responds, you know, there's there's some of those voices out there that are, you know, kind of critical of the church. Say, oh, you know, the church is really going to have to be the church right now. It's, it's like, uh, y'all, the, the church has actually been doing this for thousands of years. Uh, but she she points out one example the church's involvement in adoption and foster care are good examples. Contrary to the criticism that Christians only care about the issue of life up until the moment of birth, a recent study concluded believers are nearly three times more likely to adopt than the general public. Believers are more likely to be generous with their time and finances for those in poverty. And it's almost exclusively people of faith who run the pregnancy care centers in our country. And that's absolutely right. And I'm glad that she points that out and rebuts that criticism that frankly has no merit. And then the the last thing is actually not something that was newly produced. It was created ahead of time and published on Christianity Today's website. And it's from our own colleague, Chelsea Sobolik, who runs our Washington, D.C. office. And uh, the reason I'm highlighting this is because we have received a number of questions ourselves, and I've seen a number of folks just legitimately asking this question. And it has to do with essentially what is now defined as an abortion uh, in the post-Roe moment. And there are some out there that are misleadingly trying to say, oh, they're coming for you, women. They're coming for you if you've had a miscarriage or an ectopic pregnancy. And so Chelsea had written this piece a few weeks ago, and I've seen it now floating around several places because it helpfully walks people through why that's not the case, why that's not uh, the heart of the pro-life movement. And certainly why that's that's not what Christians are advocating for. But just to read a little bit from this, it says miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies can be extremely traumatic experiences physically, mentally, and emotionally. But it's important to point out that they are emphatically different from elective abortions. And any confusion of language can further traumatize many women. Treating a miscarriage or an ectopic pregnancy is not the same as the intentional abortion of a preborn life. In these kinds of tragic and dangerous cases, protecting the life of the mother is the ethical and moral mandate. And I just thought the rest of this piece is just so helpful because, again, there are pro-abortion voices out there that are, are trying to say, we are going after mothers, or we are going to criminalize these these medical procedures that are needed uh, to to protect the life of the mother. And um, that's just not true. Medically, that's not accurate, uh, nor is it accurate uh, in regards to the the pro-life movement. I thought this piece was worthy of the attention of our listeners to just help combat some of that misinformation. Yeah, I'm glad Chelsea wrote that piece even before Dobbs. It's been really sad to see a lot of the misinformation that has been shared online. And uh, not only that, but really it's fear-mongering, trying to scare women into thinking that their health 
is really at risk because of Roe being overturned. And that that really is just not truthful. Miscarriage, like you said, is an, an ectopic pregnancy are not elective abortions. It's a different thing. And we as believers and as Southern Baptists and resolution after resolution have long held to the exception of the life of the mother when it's in danger. And I've seen, I've just seen one, but I think we'll see more of them, stories shared about women whose lives have been in danger and were in other countries and weren't allowed to get a DNC procedure when their lives were in danger and they were undergoing a miscarriage and but those are, and that is a, a terribly tragic situation and so hard. It's also, I think, in one of these, the articles I read said it's like one less than 1% of cases. So largely, abortions are happening for elective reasons. And we're going to do our best to try to help combat some of that misinformation and provide resources that prove that, that this is not a danger to women's health. Uh, In fact, we're trying to protect women's health because abortion is a dangerous procedure for women and their health. Abortion pills are dangerous, which we have a a piece up on our side about that for women and their health. And abortion is dangerous for future women, little girls whose lives are just taken from them and don't have chance to grow up to be little women. And I can't think of anything more dangerous to a woman's life than murder. (laughs) So we do care about the woman and we care about the preborn baby. And we, we do want to make sure that women's, women's health is, uh, is protected and that women wouldn't, won't be afraid to, sadly, if they have to experience miscarriage, will not be afraid that they're going to face some kind of legal consequences. Right. And, and that's the difference, right? This is what we mentioned earlier. We draw a hard distinction between medical professionals helping mothers and giving them the, the medical care that they need physically and abortion, like there should not be a category within the term that is women's health care that involves taking a life. That's not medical care. That is, in so many ways, the exact opposite of medical care. Think about the life-saving work of doctors, nurses, and healthcare professionals. And then to somehow think, oh yeah, that also includes taking the life of a voiceless child, that is like we are so far removed from what healthcare is at that point. And I think that's that's part of the role we will play in other pro-life organizations. It's just helping our culture to come back from the brink, to come back from this f- faulty definition of healthcare. Like let, let's let's come back to what it actually means to care for those whose health is in need, and certainly making sure that a life is not taken in that process, that would also be a right and proper understanding of of healthcare. So yeah, much work lies ahead of us, Lindsay, there is no doubt. At the same time, we should also point out this, uh, just before we wrap, uh, another major Supreme Court case, certainly it's one that we take heart in. Uh, it might not have all the the big major uh, cultural implications that Dobbs uh, will, will have, but uh, we got our final Supreme Court case back this week that the RLC was engaged with. That's the Coach Kennedy case. Uh, what should our listeners know about this important religious liberty case? Yeah, this is a, an explainer that we will link to, and it is titled, The Supreme Court Strengthens Religious Expression for Teachers and Coaches. It's in a line of 
encouraging rulings on religious freedom that we have seen at the Supreme Court. So this is about Coach Kennedy, a high school football coach in Washington who had a tradition of kneeling and quietly praying at the 50-yard line after football games. So, And he didn't compel students to join him. Sometimes they would. He was later fired because of it, so he sued. And so the the Supreme Court, in a 6-3 decision, ruled that the free exercise and free speech clauses of the First Amendment protect an individual engaging in a personal religious observance from government reprisal. And I'm reading from the article, this is an important decision for religious expression, especially for teachers and coaches' ability to privately express their religious beliefs while working for schools. And then here at the end of the article, it says, this case is another victory in a long line of jurisprudence, there's that word, Brent, Mm -hmm. that further expands Americans' robust rights of religious expression. Across our convention of churches, faithful Southern Baptists can be found working in the public education sector. As Christians, Scripture calls us to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This decision bolsters believers' ability to do this in the public square without fear of repercussions. And one of the—you can read all about our analysis there, but actually one of the one of the points I loved about this is we have often said at the RLC uh, that our fundamental rights travel together. We hold out that our first freedom is religious liberty. We think we think it underpins so much, so much that is good about the health of our republic. But the court basically stated that, and it stated that the free exercise clause, the establishment clause, and the free speech clause actually all work together. Uh, they are complementary. They are not warring with one another, as some have tried to uh, falsely uh, set up that conflict. And and so that. That just heartened the little constitutional nerd in me, Lindsay. And I know it did you because, you know, your your eyes just light up when you see words like jurisprudence. That's right. Yes. The, uh, I also had not heard the our first freedoms travel together. And so I'm learning and being educated about all these things in this space. And I'm thankful for these rulings that help that make a possibility for every American to live according to their deeply held religious slash non-religious beliefs. However, even non-religious are religious beliefs, I would argue. Mm-hmm. And this is not something for unbelievers to scoff at, but to be thankful for, that their free speech and freedom of religion is protected as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, Lindsay, that, I think, is your look at what has been a truly monumental week in not just the life of the ERLC, but just the life of the SBC and the life of America. The life of our nation, yeah. yes. And that's definitely what we are talking about around the lunchroom and will be. Uh, the <laughs> lunch table will be for quite a while. To go. Yes, that's right. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. 
Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Thank you.